This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi, I'm Katie Perfacci, and I'm here with Stories of Win. I'm interviewing today Dr. Sally Temple, who is the scientific director and co-founder of the Neural Stem Cell Institute. She's also an adjunct professor at the University of Albany. Her lab focuses on using neural stem cells to develop therapies for eye, brain, and spinal cord disorders. Welcome, Sally. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm excited to speak with you. So we always start by asking our interviewees a little bit about their neuroscience origin story. So when and how did you first become interested in science and in and neuroscience specifically? Um, so I think it was really at university. I was I was really lucky to have the opportunity to study uh, as an undergraduate at Cambridge University in the UK. And I was in the zoology department. So that gave me exposure to all sorts of different you know, aspects of zoology. But I really fell in love with developmental neuroscience. And most of the department focused on invertebrate biology. And it was the time that we were really understanding about morphogens and the Hox code and how it patterned organisms. Uh, it was just such an exciting time. So I, I think I got the bug at that point. <laughs> um, so then after that, uh, you applied to grad school. Um, yes. and so, yeah, how did you just decide to go to grad school? What did you study in grad school? Yeah, I really uh, just, I, I loved the whole process of learning. And I loved the idea of doing my own experiments. Uh, and so I applied at that time. Um, I was really fascinated with glial cells. And so I applied to Martin Raff's lab at University College London. And he was working on optic nerve, which, as you know, the progenitors in the optic nerve just give rise to glia. So it's a really beautiful model system for studying gliogenesis in the central nervous system. And we were in an immunology department, which meant that we were interfacing with people talking about blood cells and hematopoietic stem cells. And I really thought the intersection of the two was really fascinating. Um, at that time, we, we didn't think uh, that the nervous system contained stem cells. But what we thought was that there were precursors that might be able to give one cell type or another. So for my graduate studies, I developed a way to do clonal culture of single cells from the, the developing optic nerve. And this, I think it was the first clonal studies in the CNS. Uh, so I was taking single cells and then asking what types of glial cells could they give rise to. And I, I found uh, progenitors that could give both astrocytes and oligodendrocytes, so common precursors. And because there was only one cell in the well, we knew that they had to both come from that same original cell. So it was 
really the starting point for me to be thinking about lineage studies. And, you know, that was so exciting. It must have been so exciting to see those different cell types in the well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really was, you know. That, and then um, I, I actually only did a short postdoc. I joined Tom Jessel's lab at Columbia University and uh, interfaced there a lot with Eric Kandel and Jimmy Schwartz. It was just a fabulous uh, learning environment. And I learned a lot of molecular techniques. But um, then my husband decided to go to med school in Miami. So <laughs> I moved to Miami kind of unexpectedly and landed there. And I was very lucky that uh, I was given a, an instructor position and a lot of um, basically that, you know, independence at an early stage. So John Barrett was very generous and said to me, you know, You've got your own grant. So I had a grant from the Royal Society at the time. So he said, you know, do what you want. And I decided that those clonal studies that I'd done on the optic nerve were so interesting that I wanted to apply that to the developing brain where you had both neurons and glia developing. So that was uh, the, the starting point. Again, you know, I had to figure out how to grow single cells now from different part of the nervous system. And then what we found was that there were some precursors dedicated to just giving neurons and others that just gave glia. And we found these cells that could give both neurons and glia and a lot of cells. And they were rare, but they were behaving like stem cells. So that, that uh, was an important study, for, certainly for me, but I think it really helped consolidate this idea that the central nervous system did have stem cells and that you could extract them and study them. Um, so, yeah, that was, it was a fun time. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, you're being modest, but this, <laughs> yeah, this discovery really blew up in the field of, of neural stem cells. So, <laughs> yeah, really I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think that quite a few people were sort of bringing these strands together at the, at the same time. So it was like, I was, I was fortunate to be in a lab at that time where John Barrett had developed all sorts of new culture media for cells. And without that, I don't think I would have got those single cells to grow. So, you know, it was really fortunate. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah, I want to talk to you about your founding of um, the Neural Stem Cell Institute. And then I know also you also founded a company, Stem Cultures. Yes. Um, and so I think it's really incredible that in both of these instances, you've kind of identified this gap in what's there and decided to fill it yourself. And so I just wanted to talk to you about that process of, of co-founding these two, this institute and this company. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It has been quite a journey, I would say. <laughs> um, so it was back in 2007 that we founded, my husband and I co-founded the uh, Neural Stem Cell Institute. Um, so his name's Jeff Stern. He was uh, in science for many years, looking at working in vision, uh, and then became 
through that whole process of being in Miami, we became an MD and a retina specialist. So he has a longstanding interest in vision. And when we started um, the Institute, we realized that we wanted to create an environment that would efficiently translate stem cell technologies, stem cell discoveries to have impact in patients' lives. Um, and we really wanted to focus on the nervous system, retina, um, but, but also brain and spinal cord. So, you know, when you are part of a very large institute, sometimes it's difficult to follow the path that you need to go in order to take something from a discovery to the clinic. And so we decided that we needed to have more, uh, be in the driver's seat more, right? Um, develop our own intellectual property, um, be in control of tech transfer and how that was done and really have a singular focus. So when we considered all of the options, we ended up saying let's start our independent nonprofit so that we would have a research institute just focused on this mission. Um, and you know, I, you know, when I, I think and look around now, I talk to people who are, you know, they're fascinated and they want to pursue a career in research, and they're really contemplating two main areas. You know, they can go into academics or they can go into industry. And I don't think we should only have two main choices. I think that there's a role for different types of institute, maybe focused institutes like ours that are you know, doing basic research, but at the same time, because they are focused, efficiently translating that through into the clinic. And, you know, if we could replicate what we've done across the country, which would be awesome, then think about how many other opportunities there would be to do science. So I, I, that was that was also you know a really important part of the decision to to start um, to start the Neural Stem Cell Institute. And I, I just want to say I'm so grateful for the incredible scientists who work with us because you know they are there's uh, about thirty of us all working to use stem cells to develop new therapies for neurodegenerative disorders. And, you know, we, I, I, we owe everything to them, right? Um, so you were asking about stem cultures as well. And yes, I love yeah. to hear that. Yeah, so, and kind of how you managed all of this together. Oh. <laughs> it just seems like some of these things would have such a huge yeah. learning curve from a, from a background in academia. Well, yes, it certainly has been. Um, so how do we start our spinoff? stem cultures so stem cultures is a reagent company and uh it's it sells uh, growth factors that have been formulated for sustained release so that we know how what is going into our culture system um so it was back in around 2009 when we started to grow human pluripotent stem cells 
you know, it was such a shock to go from mouse cultures to human cultures and realize that you had to feed them every single day. <laughs> so we said, well, we had done, I had done quite a bit of medium development through, you know, through my past research. And I wanted to understand why, what component was so essential that you had to replenish the medium every day. And so we broke the medium down and we figured out that it was fibroblast growth factor two, FGF2. And it turns out that if you take FGF2 and you put it into culture medium, it has a half-life of four hours. Oh, no. Yes. So you feed and you think, great, you know, my cells are doing really well. And you walk away and the FGF2 is dropping through the floor. (laughs) You feed and it goes up, but then it goes down and up and down. And so the cells are in this really unstable environment. So what we began working on was a formula for FGF2 in which we encapsulate the FGF2 in a biodegradable microbead. And then uh, we put those in the culture and they release and just keep the FGF2 level steady. Now we only have to feed twice a week. Oh, that's amazing. That's right. so clever. And you save money and you save labor. Um, we have a new way of delivering it now that my postdoc Taylor Batucci invented, where we put those microbeads in a in a hydrogel disc that it floats in the medium, so it doesn't interfere with the cells, and it just releases the FGF two. So you put one disc in a well, leave it in there for a week until you passage, and the cells are they're better because they're not going through all of those ups and downs of the growth factor. Um, and so, so what we found is that they have higher pluripotency markers and less spontaneous differentiation. And then when we put them into our differentiation programs, they behave more homogeneously and you get really more efficient differentiation. It, it works in if you're making organoids too, brain organoids. So um, really, you know, we, we see STEM cultures as an outlet for discoveries that we're making that help us. And we think if they help us, then they can help other people as well. Um, so that was how we ended up spinning off STEM cultures. First to supply the FGF, sustained release FGF2, uh, but also now we do other growth factors too, because it's not just FGF2 that has a short half-life. It's many of the things that we add. You know, as scientists, you want to be in control of what you're doing and your culture environment is so critical that if everything is, you know, decaying, you know, all those key growth factors are decaying at different rates, then you really want control of that. So that's that's the vision behind STEM cultures and Another thing that we did was set it up so that revenue from STEM cultures comes back to the nonprofit for our discovery research. And that oh, means that, right, right. We, we call it the evergreen model. <laughs> so the idea is then that, you know, if you have a great idea next week, and then you, you have to write a grant and it gets reviewed. And maybe a year later, if you're lucky, you'll get money to fund that idea, right? But with this, 
funding that comes back, you can start implementing and doing those pilot experiments earlier. So that's the, uh, you know, that's the benefit, I think, the way we set it up. So with this, with your institute and your company, um, which you're still like so heavily involved with both, as well as being an adjunct professor, how do you manage doing all of that at once? So. You know, it it comes down to having a great team and great partners in this. And I've been very, very lucky to recruit awesome scientists who help. And I said, delegation is my middle name. I, I, you know, when I can't do something, I give it to someone else and they do a great job. So I don't need to. Um my husband and I, we do a lot of the sort of oversight together. He is incredible. He does so much work. He has a clinical practice as well as helping with clinical trial, run the Institute and, and, and STEM cultures as well. So it really is, uh, it's recruitment, but it's also retention. Is I have, um, we, we rely a lot on technicians in the lab who have worked with me for a long time. We value so much that continuity of knowledge. And then when new people come in, they are trained by really experienced scientists. So uh, I, I think it's just making sure that all the activities are covered by, by experts, by other people. So I can just, you know, uh, sit back and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> Not really. Have a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, we're busy, but we're busy, but but it's it's all it's all fun. It's all good, you know. It's great. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, both your company and the research are doing such incredible things. So it must be exciting and rewarding to see that to see that fruitful. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's, uh, it is. Yeah, we, we enjoy going to work every day. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit more then about the current direction of your research um, and what main questions you're trying to answer? So uh, we're currently creating stem cell models to study the time course of neurodegenerative disease. Um, you know, when patients go to the go to the doctor they usually have lost a lot of tissue at that point in the disease process and you know you can do some imaging but what we really want to know is what were the changes that occurred much earlier that then led to that neurodegeneration and the the more we learn about these neurodegenerative diseases the more we're understanding that the changes are happening you know quite early on, much pre-symptomatic, you know. So to my mind, these human cells and especially the organoid models are really great model systems to study this. And so what we're doing, for example, is uh, that we have a collection of lines that was funded by the Tau Consortium, which is just an amazing uh, organization funded through the Rainwater Foundation. 
um, the Tau Consortium helped us build a collection of lines from patients with frontotemporal dementia. And what we're doing is making organoids that then we can study over time. And it's truly amazing that by six months, the organoids with the mutation show signs of glutamatergic death much greater than the controls. In six months, you're seeing neurodegeneration. So now we can look back what happens at two months, what happens at four months. And through that, we've been able to identify some of the early things that are changing because of the mutation in the tau gene that then we think lead to neurodegeneration, like you know, upregulation of glutamatergic pathways, um, upregulation of an RNA binding protein, ELAV like four. And we're, we're now studying those early stages. So that's just an example of one of the ways we're going about it. We're also modeling, um, we're modeling age-related macular degeneration to study that disease as well. And, and so those are, you know, discovery projects, just a couple of examples, but we are also pursuing a cell transplant that we initiated for age-related macular degeneration. We discovered a new stem cell in the retina, in the retina pigma epithelium, and we can take it from cadaver donated eyes. They're donated for cornea transplants. So we, we can take that tissue, take the RPE cells out and grow up from the stem cell population. Now, you know, billions of these cells. And we are just starting our clinical trial. We're right in the process now of recruiting patients at the University of Michigan. We have awesome lead there, Rajesh Rao, who is a, one of these unique clinician scientists. I, I, I really don't know how they're doing, <laughs> how they do both, but he's amazing. And uh, I just have to give a shout out to our GMP facility at, at Cedars-Sinai. They've been fabulous partners in this. So we are we're ready to go we're we're very excited you know that's so exciting could, yeah so can yeah. you explain a little bit about this uh this therapeutic like mm -hmm. what would it help in a patient essentially yes yes so patients with age-related macular degeneration um this is a blinding disease and it affects the central portion of the retina the macula it's, it's really small. It's like a few millimeters across, but it turns out to be the main place where we see high acuity vision, color vision. So if it's damaged, you know, you really are impeded and patients will become legally blind. Um, they can't read, you know, they can't recognize faces. It's, it, it sort of really inhibits their independence. So for those patients, what, what's been discovered is that there's a thin layer of pigmented cells at the back of the, of the eye as part of the retina. It's the, called the retina pigment epithelium. And those cells are really critical to support the photoreceptors, the light responsive cells. Um, and it turns out in these patients in the macular region, the RPE cells are degenerating. 
So the idea is we're going to make new healthy retina pigment epithelial cells, and we're going to implant those in, into the patients, into those affected areas. So literally it's done by injecting the cells subretinally into the eye in the patients. And what we're hoping is they'll, they'll repair and they'll replenish that layer and it will help the photoreceptors function better and stop them dying. Hopefully they'll see an improvement in vision, which will be awesome. That's so exciting. That's really, yeah. I know it's been a, it's been a long haul from discovering the cells right through. Uh, it's been about 10 years, but maybe that's not so bad. You know, we had to yeah. build everything in the path and do all of the studies <laughs> We applied for our IND in the middle of the pandemic. And oh my gosh. I know. And we got it. So, you know, it's just great. That's so exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think some basic science projects can take 10 years. So, the, yeah, that you can go from true. a discovery to, a, yeah. to the clinical trial in 10 years, mm. I think it's, it's mm. pretty good. But yeah. that's really exciting. Um, so I'll then pivot a bit and I, so part of the reason that we, that we do this podcast is some of our audiences may be thinking about uh, following a path in, in academia or sort of trying to figure out what path they want in science um, to kind of, and if they're struggling, I think it can really help to hear from people who are well-established that, that they struggled to at some point. Um, and so I wanted to ask you if there was a specific time in your training or um, early in your career when you went through a particularly challenging time or, or weren't sure you wanted a career in research. Yes, that, that is a good question. You know, um, I don't think anyone goes through life without, you know, hurdles uh, and challenges. And, uh, you know, I have three kids. Um, and I always wanted to find an environment where I could put kids first. It was very important for me. And so there were times I would say when, you know, the, the sort of tension between work and life, it was very real. I would say that I knew I, I never wanted to give up. I, you know, I, I knew it was something I wanted to do. But I also look for an environment that fit my idea of success. Um, you know, people say to me all the time, like, why are you in Albany, upstate New York? They say, you know, it's a great city for raising a family. It is a great city. There's excellent science here. But it also was a place where I felt I could contribute and also live the life that I wanted, my husband wanted, right? Uh, it was it was best for family. So, I, you know, maybe I could have been successful if I was in the middle of a big city. But then I was thinking, you know, the commute and the kids not being close by, and there were so many other things that made this place for me a good choice. And 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 so I think defining what success is for you and not necessarily following the beaten path, but really, you know, I, I uh, finding out your path 
um, you know, don't necessarily think that the highest level university is the best place for you because you can contribute in a place where you're needed and a place that fits your life goals better. Um, and yeah, that's, I think, in the end, how I sort of work through some of those issues. I really like that message. And I think it's important for those, yeah, going on the job search to hear that, that, yeah, location can be right for you and not just, you know. Yes, location and type of school and type of environment. Um, Yeah. Um, So, and maybe this, this was, was, would be the advice you'd give to your younger self, but I wanted to ask if you could go back in time and, and talk to yourself as you're just starting out in your career. Is there any advice you'd give yourself? So that is such a great question. I, I think that now I always have a tendency to say, no, I'll discover something. And then there's the next question, right? So you go, oh, you know, let's do the next step. Let's do the next step. And sometimes I feel I've delayed publishing because I always wanted to do the next thing and add it in. So looking back, I think I would have said to myself, you have a nice story, know when to stop (laughs) and get the story out there and then build on it in the next paper. Um, Yeah, less is more. That's the... (laughs) That's the message. Yeah. Yeah. It can definitely be hard to stop. There's yeah. <laughs> you know. to <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's good advice mm-hmm. that maybe I need to take soon. <laughs> <laughs> so we usually end our interviews with talking about something a little bit lighter. Um, so I wanted to ask if you have a typical morning routine. Yeah, so... <laughs> Is that I I realized that you know as you're asking it I'm I literally get out of bed get a cup of coffee and start work I <laughs> it's probably the most unhealthy routine <laughs> is that even a routine um, you know I I guess I do I love what I do yeah so I want to start right away. <laughs> I love that. (laughs) Okay. I think that's mostly it, unless there's something else you want to talk about and I can. I just want to know what are you doing now? (laughs) 